welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. So glad you're with us this morning. Um, Last Sunday morning, I introduced to you a series that we were going to be doing, uh, and I introduced it by saying every now and then I read a book um, that I wished everybody in the congregation could read. And uh, The Mission of God by Christopher Wright is is one of those books. Excuse me. Um, I'm a realist, and I realize that not everybody in the congregation is going to read a book like that. Um, It's nearly 600 pages for a start, so it's not something that you kind of pick up and flick your way through. But it is a, a brilliant book, and so what I decided to do was to feed you the book without you knowing it, by basically preaching, uh, not, not through it, but certainly giving you the main ideas of Christopher Wright's incredible book. So last week I introduced the series by talking about the whole idea of mission, and uh, I mentioned that once that word is, is used, sometimes people's minds just flick into a certain pattern, they think they know what I'm going to talk about, and so, you know, if you're not interested in cross-cultural missions, it's kind of like, oh man, I can't wait for the next series, um, flick, flick off into another, into another area, you know, do Facebook on your phone while, while I'm preaching or whatever else. And what I was trying to say is the whole idea of cross-cultural mission is only a small part of a much larger picture that actually Wright presents. He talks to us about understanding that the Bible is a missional phenomenon. And he says this, it's the Bible that gives witness to the self-giving movement of an unquestionably personal, purposeful, goal-orientated God toward his creation and us as human beings made in his image, but presently wayward and wanton. So what he does and what I did last week is present to you the Bible as a story. It's not just a collection of, um, of sort of unrelated narratives, ethics, proverbs, songs, and poetry. It is actually an overarching, what we call a worldview story, a grand narrative. Now, I know that some of you, you know, you're postmoderns and you've been through university and you know that uh, postmoderns are suspicious of grand narratives. They say, when somebody's telling an overarching story, all they're trying to do is control you. And so many postmodern philosophers and academics reject large stories. The problem is you can't escape large stories, and rejecting large stories and making up your own story is a story. And We live within stories and are shaped by stories, so it's incredibly important that you choose the right story. And the Bible is an overarching story, and we are invited into the story. It is the story of God on mission as he seeks, first of all, to create a people with whom he can relate to. In the falling away of that people, then we have the story of God seeking to redeem them. And the large portion of the Bible is that story of redemption. So I talked talked all about that last week. So the idea is not so much that it's you and I on mission as much as it is God on mission. This is what what theologians call the missio dei, the, the mission of God. 
So after setting the scene that mission is first of all God's, first and foremost his mission, and ours only in a secondary sense, Wright then goes on to talk about the God who is on mission. And that's what I want to do this morning. So we set the scene last week. We talked about the mission of God. The title, if you like, of this sermon is The God of the Mission. So in doing that, we leap over Genesis straight into the book of Exodus. We will return to Genesis when we talk about the people of this mission, but we leap over to the book of Exodus because it's in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, that the living God begins to reveal himself in a manner hitherto undisclosed. Exodus chapter, three, chapter 6, verse 3, God is speaking to Moses, and he says an interesting thing. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make themself known. So in all of the dealings with the patriarch, there's, patriarchs, there's something that God has not yet shown them in his character fully. But the Exodus is about to reveal that. The, the, the patriarchs knew God as the all-sufficient, powerful God as El Shaddai. But they hadn't experienced the full implications of his name and character, Yahweh. That's what that passage says. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. G. Campbell Morgan says that the name Yahweh supremely stands for the grace of God manifest in redeeming power. And this name that he's about to reveal to these people through this Exodus experience highlights the redemptive aspect of who he is. The book of Exodus stands as the great defining demonstration of God's self-revelation to his people, and in fact, beyond them, to all people. So this experience, the Exodus, is a massive learning experience for the people of Israel. It's a foundational experience for them as they are forged from being a bunch of disparate slaves into being God's people, his elect people. Now, I don't know whether you remember, but last week uh, I, I mentioned that the concept of election is not a matter of salvation or favoritism. The, the concept of election is unto service, and these people have been elected in a role of service to the nations. So the election of the one is for the sake of the many. It is not the rejection of the many, but it is for the sake of the many. So these people are forged by this experience of the Exodus into a nation who will be servants of this mission of God to all peoples. So the Exodus provides for these people a paradigm of God's future acts of deliverance. What he does in the Exodus burns its way into their psyche so deeply that for the rest of their history, whenever they are talking about or praying for or wishing for deliverance, they couch it in Exodus terms. They describe it in terms of what God does here. This is the supreme example, at least in the old part of the story, of what God can do. When you get into the new part of the story, the supreme example of what God can do is the resurrection. So we are bookended in the story by, um, by examples of God's incredible redemptive power, the exodus in the old part of the story, the resurrection in the new. 
when this people are in exile in Babylon thousands of years after the Exodus, their hopes and prayers are all couched in Exodus language. Isaiah says this, at that time, the Lord will bring back a remnant of his people for a second time. Now, thousands of years later, Isaiah is prophesying about an act that God will do to bring people out of bondage and exile, and he says, God is going to do something a second time. Now, everybody who reads that in a Jewish context knows the first time. And the first time was the Exodus. It's the paradigm by which all other deliverances and acts of God uh, are judged and measured. It's actually fascinating, and I did this a couple of years ago at Christmas time. I did a series called An Exodus Shaped Christmas. And it's fascinating to see that at the time of Jesus, the hopes and prayers of the Jewish people at that time were soaked in Exodus language. These people recognized that they were still in exile. Though they were back in the promised land, they were still under the the heel of foreign powers. They had never escaped the heel of foreign powers, and they knew that they were still in exile. So they're still looking for this Exodus that Isaiah had prophesied about. And they were expecting a prophet like unto Moses to come and to lead them out of the exile and out of Roman bondage back into freedom. And their prayers, their hopes are all couched and soaked, marinated, if you like, in Exodus language. It's from the story of the Exodus that we begin to see something of the God behind this mission, the God behind this grand story that I spoke about last week. He begins to reveal himself in a way that up to this point he hadn't. And first of all, the first thing we see, I'm just going to mention a couple of things about the self-revelation of God. And the first thing we see is that God is a God who wills to be known. He's not hiding off in the ether somewhere distant, uh, having created the world, set it spinning as the deists say, and then not interested. This is a God who wants to be involved with his people. He wants to reveal his name, his nature to his people, and then through that people, ultimately to all people. In Exodus chapter 6, that portion I read, it says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the strong God, but by my name, God, I am present. I was not known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the country in which they lived as sojourners. But now I've heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians continue to enslave, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore tell the Israelites, I am God, I will bring you out from under the cruel hard labor of Egypt. I will rescue you from slavery. I will redeem you, intervening with great acts of judgment. I'll take you as my own people, and I'll be God to you. You'll know that I am your God who brings you out from under the cruel hard labor of Egypt. I will bring you into the land that I promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and give it to you as your own country. I'm God. I, through this, if you notice that passage, he's saying, I'll do this. I will do this. I will do this and this and this. And the purpose of all of those acts is so that you will know So through his actions in Exodus, Israel will know conclusively who is God and who is not. 
as a result of how he acts, they will know some fundamental truths about his character and about his power. So the book of Exodus then is an unparalleled and unprecedented revelation of the uniqueness and identity of God to Israel. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter four, it says this, or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation from himself from amidst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other beside him. So, through the Exodus, Israel came to know something of God's power, something of his love, his faithfulness, and his mercy. They saw both his deliverance on their behalf and his judgment on the people of Egypt. And through even the judgment, they began to learn something of his character. They began to understand that God is a God of justice who cannot be trifled with and cannot be resisted with impunity. You know, in Psalm 9, verse 16, it says, the Lord is known by the judgment that he executes. So even his judgment is a revelation of his character. Much later, when Israel resisted God with persistent re rebellion, it was they that experienced the judgment, and it was they that came to see the justice in God's character, that God, in fact, had no favorites. So there's this recurring motif that runs through the story of Exodus, and it is, they shall know. And I've listed some scriptures here. Exodus 7.5, the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord. 7.17, by this you shall know that I'm the Lord. Exodus 8.22, that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the earth. Exodus 9.14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Exodus 14.18, and the Egyptians shall know. God is interested that we know him. He is a God who wants to be known. He is not hiding from us. And even when he appears to be hiding, as it were, he is hiding for us, not from us. He wants to be known. The second thing that comes out of the story of Exodus is we see God is incomparable. There is no one like him. In the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, as the people come up out of the Red Sea onto the other side of the, uh, of the ocean and the Egyptians are drowned and they begin to see and uh, sing and celebrate, this factor is celebrated. This ringing conclusion is drawn from what God has just done in Israel. He is absolutely incomparable and they sing, who is like you? Well, it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is there's no one like this. There's no God that does these sorts of things. Yahweh proved himself to be far superior to all the gods of Egypt. You know, he'd said in Exodus 12, 12, against the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I'm over them. I'm above them. I cannot be compared to them. And whoever and whatever those gods were, the narrator doesn't even bother to name them, they are no match for the God of Israel. And that's a much repeated refrain throughout the rest of this great narrative. We are introduced to it in Exodus. There's no God like this God. But all through the story, that refrain is repeated. In Isaiah, we read of Yahweh asking the people, to whom will you compare me? 
Who is my equal? In Psalm 89, verse six, for who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? He is simply beyond comparison. There is nobody like him. He is beyond comparison in pardoning sin and forgiving iniquity. Micah says, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. No other God does this. He is beyond comparison in making and keeping promises. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22, David is praying. And God has promised David a house. And David is saying, therefore you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you, nor is there any other God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. You promise things and you bring them to pass. You do them. He's beyond comparison in the way that he acts for his people. Isaiah 64 verse four. Since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the ones who wait for him. This God is incomparable in every way that he acts, in deliverance, in judgment, in forgiveness, in making and keeping promises, in working for those who wait for him. There's no one like him. The second thing we see in the book of Exodus with regard to his character, well, the third thing, the first one is he wants to be known, the second one is incomparable, the third, and it's tied up with the other ones, is that he is absolutely sovereign. Exodus 15, 18, that same song that they were singing as they came up out of the water, the Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the first mention that God is a king in the scriptures, the kingdom of God. And, you know, the fascinating thing is as we look at the book of Exodus and this kingdom, we note it is immediately not what people might have expected it to be. It's not what Israel would have expected it to be. They'd been under a kingdom in Egypt for 400 years, and it exploited them. That kingdom was all about its own glory, its own splendor, its own honor, and it was willing to build that glory and kingdom on the back of the downtrodden and the slaves. This kingdom is quite unlike that. Yahweh exercises his rule on behalf of the weak and the oppressed. He comes in the exodus and liberates an ethnic minority who have undergone economic ex exploitation, political oppression, and have been the subject of state-inspired campaign of genocide. God doesn't run with the wealthy. He doesn't run with the celebrities. He is really, really concerned about the broken, the, the disenfranchised in our society. That's the kind of God and that's the kind of kingdom that this God rules. He's a perfect king and the Bible talks about a perfect king caring for those under his rule. So in Psalm 72, for example, it outlines the nature and rule of a perfect king. And in verse 11, it says, yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he, when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy. He will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. I want to say to you, a mark of the kingdom of God is the people's care for the poor. Psalm 41, blessed is he who concerns himself and cares for the poor. Wherever the kingdom goes, this king is concerned about the disenfranchised, 
about the broken. It's not a kingdom like anything we've ever seen. It's incomparable. He is presented throughout the story as the sovereign over, the, over nations and over history. So in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, it says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. You know, the main message, perhaps, in the book of Daniel one that's often repeated is that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. This God is sovereign over all. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat prays, O Lord, God of our fathers, you are, you are not God in heaven and do you, and do you not rule in, over all the kingdoms of the nations. And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And the answer to that is yes, you are. And yes, you do. So we see through the Exodus that Yahweh is able to deliver and exercise his sovereign rule over the nations. So he wants to be known. He is absolutely incomparable. He is sovereign over all. And he moves in this incredible act of deliverance for the sake of his own name. Now, this, this one puzzled me somewhat, and I have to be honest and make a confession here that, that I probably struggled over this one somewhat, and I'm going to explain why. But it seems that as God begins to act through the Exodus, he's concerned for his own reputation. You may remember that when Moses is wrestling in God with intercession for Israel, they'd been worshiping the golden calf, and God said, stand aside, Moses, I'm going to destroy them, and I'll make another nation out of you. Well, Moses steps in and begins to intercede, and he appeals to the idea that if God destroys these people as he's threatening to do, his reputation will suffer in the sight of the nations. They'll say, he couldn't do it. He brought them out, but he couldn't take them in. He's not as good as he thought he was. You brought them out, you weren't able to take them through and then in. And God responds to Moses' line of reasoning and spares Israel on the basis of it. I think what we have to see is behind this appeal is the foundational understanding that all of God's dealings with Israel are not only open to the gaze of the surrounding nations, but are ultimately undertaken with them in mind. So here, even though God is moving in Israel, all that he does is watched on by the nations and is ultimately for the sake of the nations. So again, I say the election and redemption of Israel was all part of God's larger mission to the nations. Now, this idea of God being really concerned with his own reputation and the honor of his own name is again taken up through the story, and it it emerges particularly in the prophet Ezekiel. It's one of Ezekiel's recurring motifs. So, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 9, God says, But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So again, he's referring back to the Exodus thousands of years later. This story burns in their thinking. And he's saying, I acted for my name's sake 
Verse 14, but I acted for my namesake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were in whose sight I had made myself known. Verse 22, nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my namesake that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. And then again in Exodus 36, therefore say to the people of Israel, the Lord God says, I'm bringing you back again, but not because you deserve it. I'm doing it to protect my holy name, which you tarnished among the nations. I will honor my great name that you defiled, and the people of the world shall know I am the Lord. I will be honored before their eyes by delivering you from exile among them. God seems to be very concerned with his reputation, his, his name. And as I said to you, I have to make something of a confession here, because reading about that concern at first bothered me. And I don't know whether you were told this growing up, but my mum always said, don't concern yourself with what other people think and say about you. You know, when, when you'd go home and say, oh, they're saying this and this, and, and you know, you've heard it, oh, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names, will. don't worry about what people think of you. I, I got the message that to be overly concerned about my reputation was not a particularly desirable trait. I have to be honest and say I'm not sure I ever mastered that piece of advice fully. I was, and to a degree remain, I think, like most people, struggle sometimes with what people might think about me. In my more reflective moments, when I probed into why I was like that, I saw that mostly my concerns were rooted in my own insecurity and pride. I, perhaps like you, wanted to be seen in the best light possible. And equally, there were parts of my life that I hope people didn't see at all. So, like you, I suspect, I would sometimes do these not-so-delicate dances, adjusting my image to present the best possible picture rather than simply walking in reality. So, with that as a little bit of a background, you might see why when I suddenly read, or when I read, rather, about God being particularly concerned about his own reputation, it was a bit of a concern to me. I was a bit suspicious. I thought, is God a bit insecure? Is he, is he a little proud? Was this all about adjusting his image so that he appeared in the best possible light? Is such behavior wrong for me but okay for him because he's bigger than I am? Now, I, I knew at the moment the questions were being asked that intuitively they were somewhat misguided, but I just didn't know why. Over time, I think I've come to understand a little bit, and I'm just going to present this to you. I hope it translates okay, because as I was thinking it through, I think this could come out really muddled. So I hope it translates okay, but I, I began to understand that God's name, his reputation, and his person are actually one and the same thing. In his case, reputation and reality aren't separate entities as they tended to be in my case. So much so that there, were pa there are passages in the scripture where it says, where it actually replaces name with person. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 30 verse 27, it says, look, the name of Yahweh comes from afar. Well, what that actually means is here comes Yahweh. Not, not some, you know, he throws his name out there and it comes from a long distance. Here comes Yahweh. And again in Psalm 20, the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Well, that, that, that's nothing other than God himself, the God of Jacob, stepping into that situation to protect you. So, in a sense, the name is personified. The name 
is the person. So when God says, I'm concerned about my reputation, I'm concerned about my name, what he's talking about is his character, his person. And, and it dawned on me that his concern for his name and reputation wasn't that he wanted to be seen better than he actually is, as it was in my case, but simply that he wants to be seen as he is in actuality, in reality. This concern that people understand his name, his person aright, isn't motivated in his case by some deep insecurity, but by the reality that if they don't understand that name, if they don't understand his reputation, his person, it is not he that will be diminished, but they. You see, if you draw the wrong conclusions about his person, his name, his reputation, he doesn't suffer, you do. He isn't concerned that we see him somehow in the best possible light. He is simply concerned that we see him as he truly is because he is for you. He wants to be known. He wants to bless. And when we don't understand the name, the person, the reputation, it is not him that misses out but you. And he's concerned about that. He wants us to see who he is, how he feels about us, how he is prepared to act on our behalf. And if we don't see it, or if we misunderstand what we see, then we simply cannot access all he's done on our behalf. As I say, if I think wrongly about God, in one sense, he doesn't suffer, I do. Although having said that, if a father wants to bless his children and the children are so disposed as to not understand that and to turn away from that, there is something in the father's heart that suffers because the father wants to bless his children. He wants us to understand his reputation, not so that he can be the king of the totem pole and everybody else bows down. He simply wants you to see that and understand that so that all he is and wants to do on your behalf can actually be accessed. If it's not, the mission is undermined because the mission is to bless the peoples. The mission is to bless the nations. When we come back and look at the people of the mission, we'll see that God says to Abraham, I'm, I'm calling you so that ultimately I can bless you and then through you I can bless the nations. God wants to bless people. He wants to be known so that he can be God in his fullness, Yahweh, the God of grace who moves in redeeming power to people. And when we, for some reason, misunderstand his reputation, or as his ambassadors, we tarnish his reputation so that people turn away, those people are then diminished. The Exodus then is a revelation about God, his person, his name, so that people might come to understand who he is. So here's the story, okay, the overarching story of how God wants to be involved with people's lives and bless them. In the second part of the story, he says, this is the God who is on mission. He's a God who's reaching out to you because he wants to be known. He is a God who is incomparably great in forgiving sins and making promises and keeping them and acting on the behalf of people who wait for him. There's no one like this God. This God is the sovereign God. He is able to move circumstances, peoples, nation, and history itself so that his mission and his purpose is advanced. 
And he does this so that people will understand his person. He's concerned about his reputation, not because he's deeply insecure and proud, but because he wants you to understand his character, his heart toward you. This is a God who's deeply invested in blessing the people who are made in his image. This morning, you may be in a situation where you think, you know what, I could do with a bit of Exodus redemption because my life is incredibly broken. This part of my life is just falling apart at the seams. I wanna say to you, this is a God who wants to be known in the midst of that bondage. He's a God who's incomparably great and whatever the bondage is and however big it seems to you, it's not to him. He can move in that situation. He can turn that situation. He's sovereign over that situation. And he wants you to grasp something of his heart toward you in the midst of that situation. He's for you. This is a God who is on mission. He's, we, would, we, we sometimes say of people, oh man, he's really, he's really focused on that. Well, I want to tell you, we, we serve a God who is really focused on you on blessing, on people coming to know his heart for them. So this is the God of the mission. I'm gonna ask if the musicians would come. You know, when Israel discovered the God of the mission, when they discovered a God who wanted to be known, who was completely incomparable, was sovereign, and that had a heart toward them, their response was one of worship, and ours should be too. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to worship and we're going to come around the table as well this morning. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.